0: Welcome to episode 169. Today we learn about how language is lost and how we can preserve it. Welcome to the Teaching Multilingual Learners podcast. This podcast celebrates teachers who answer the calling to serve multilingual students and their families. my favorite part of the holidays is when my relatives come together and we talk over food i look forward most to my oldest nephew coming to visit us he'll burst through the door and run first to grandma he'll only spend a few minutes there then he'll find me from then we'll spend hours at the kitchen table on the couch just talking and laughing and catching up on our past events of the year. The reason we spend hours together is because we're both fluent in English. He spends only a few minutes with grandma because his Vietnamese is so limited and her English isn't as advanced. She'll ask him only yes, no questions in Vietnamese because she knows he can't explain his ideas fully in Vietnamese. My nephew didn't go to a bilingual school when he grew up So it was never maintained and intentionally developed just like English. He developed passive bilingualism where he learned to listen and understand to Vietnamese somewhat. He never intentionally learned to speak it, write it, or read it. And as a consequence, he has only superficial relationships with his grandmother. This means he can only know our culture and her stories at the surface level. My nephew's story is repeated again and again among millions of students around the world who are multilingual. Today, Dr. Veronica Benavides shares her intimate story of losing her Spanish and actively regaining it. She'll also share at the end of the podcast how schools and teachers can support MLs like her to maintain their heritage languages at school. Now... On to today's podcast. I'm so excited to have Veronica Benavides on the podcast where she will talk about the Language Preservation Podcast. Veronica, bienvenidos.
1: Muchas gracias por tenerme aquí. Es un placer. La placer es Happy mio. to be here. <laughs> Thank you. Can you please start
0: off with uh, telling us how you spend your days, where you spend your days, and What is your proudest professional achievement? So how do I spend
1: my days? Um, Well, I spend my days in Copenhagen mostly. That's kind of the home base for me. So I wake up and try to start with a slow morning. I'm greeted by my two loud trilingual children and um, take them to school and then kind of engage in my workday. Uh, and I work both here in Copenhagen and also in the US. Most of our work is actually based in the US. And our core work, the Language Preservation Project, works with families and educators to help them to cultivate heritage languages. So, you know, this really came from my experience as a heritage language speaker, someone who had Spanish in their family, but through the generations it was lost. Um, And I really saw how that was discouraged by schools, how it was not cultivated in school settings, and then how that affected the decisions that my parents made. And then I became an educator, got my doctorate in education, and saw that more than 33% of students enter into school settings speaking their home language, but less than 16% graduate with biliteracy or fluency in those languages. And so there's some major disconnect happening there, um, and it can be seen across many different points that we could get into, but but that was that then became my life's work to reclaim my own heritage language and then to try to change the ecosystem within communities that would allow for students to maintain connections to their languages and cultures because of the many benefits that come with that. So that's what I work on mostly during the day. And then I pick up my crazy kids from school. We have a lovely dinner time together, put them to bed, um, and then um, usually back online a couple of nights a week because I work across time zones. And then try to try to get in bed by 10am if possible, um, so that I can get my full eight hours of sleep.
0: Can you uh, tell us a story about
1: teaching that has changed your practice? Yeah, a story about teaching that has changed my practice. Well, I became a teacher straight out of undergrad. Um, I was getting my master's at the same time while I was teaching, uh, in New York city and I was very much like a Texas girl. New York city was like a, you know, big new world to me. So I feel like I was learning a lot while going to be a teacher as well. And, um, I was learning a lot of cultural differences as well. Um, so I was teaching high school, um, ninth and 10th graders, social studies, And um, I was teaching in a very diverse school in the Lower East Side of Manhattan that had um, Dominican students, Puerto Rican students, um, students from Thailand and China and Mexico and African-Americans and like lots of different identities that were there. A very large Spanish-speaking population from many different countries And um, I remember in one of the classes that I was in, I kind of heard like a scuffle in the back of the class. And I went up to the students to say like, hey, what's going on? And one of the students said, well, he called me a Mexican, miss. And I said, well, what's wrong with being called a Mexican? And he said, well, I'm not Mexican. Mexicans are like ugly and dirty. And I said, okay, like very shocked. And said, well, you know, I'm Mexican. And they were like, no, you're not Mexican, miss. Like you don't, you don't like look like a Mexican or this or that. And so it was a, it was the first time, number one, that I had really heard stereotypes about Mexicans like outside of TV. Like I had seen that as a kid growing up on like, you know, outside of the narrative, but most of the community that I was with was like Mexican or Salvadorian. And so I hadn't really experienced those types of stereotypes like directly in my community and it really was a thing in this school that there was like a hierarchy of latinidad like which latinos were the good latinos and which latinos like were not the good latinos and this showed up in that you know in that class in that moment and we had a discussion as a class we talked about it Um, But it was still there, it kind of popped up in different instances, there was a Spanish class that was being taught, and the all the students were being complained about uh, complaining about being assigned Mexico, like they didn't want to be assigned Mexico as a country to study, because they thought that it was not good or not cool. And so the teacher just took Mexico off of the country study list, because you know, none of the kids wanted it. And I remember going up to the principal and saying, you can't just erase this culture identity from the curriculum because kids are complaining about it. Like this is something that you need to lean into and talk about. So I actually a year or so later ended up creating a course um, called Movement Makers that was focusing on like ethnic studies and focusing on different cultures, and really having students dive into those conversations, not from a place of like, shame, you shouldn't be doing this, right? Because students were just reflecting back what they've been absorbing, but then allowing them a different perspective to to understand different cultural identities and differences and to approach it from a place of curiosity and appreciation rather than fear or hate. So that was you know, a real formative moment for me.
0: Oh, it's it makes me think like where did that child get that that idea of like don't call me Mexican and it it'd be worse mm-hmm. if that child was Mexican and didn't want to identify mm-hmm. as like that yeah. internalized racism. I I, I used I spent some time in Latin in uh, Argentina and I could see them people saying oh you're gonna love Argentina it's like the Europe of Latin America and before then I was like oh yeah that sounds real fun and I'm like wait a minute, why are we saying it, It Argentina being like, it sounded like the best place to be in, in Latin America because it's so close associated to Europe. I'm like, doesn't that mean that they lose their Latin Americanness because they're so European? I thought that was funny.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's something that I think working so much right now with a lot of Latinx families and educators is something that we need to dive into. To of like what are the images that we are showing our children around Latinidad? and is it centering, you know, what we would see on telenovelas that are like white European Latino people that are like not representative of what our community actually looks like, where we come from. And so it's really beginning to see it, question it, interrogate it, and then start to change it. And so, Yeah, I think there's also a lot of work to even look at like bilingual materials. So it's not just happening in our media in terms of you know TV, what we're seeing, but it also happens in terms of if we're trying to pass on the Spanish language to our children, there's also a lot of um, lack of diversity in the materials and like an aspiration towards whiteness or Europeanness that is a legacy of colonialism that you can see in materials that that hopefully we're starting to shift and that's a part of what we're trying to do at the language preservation project as well
0: well we'll get to that soon let's first talk about um, actually you use the term heritage language and that's what i use i used to use home language and now i use heritage language can you i love for your perspective why did
1: you uh, intentionally use heritage language yeah um, I mean it's it's funny, I think there's just it's so hard to find the right term, right because home language it feels a little bit more intuitive. It's like, oh, it's the language of the home, but it doesn't always it's not always a language of the home right it could be the language of the grandparents home it, it's 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 a heritage language is essentially the language that comes from your culture the language that comes from your grandparents or great grandparents and it could have been lost at any point along the generations or preserved we all have different relationships to our heritage languages um, the term that we also like to use at the Language Preservation Project is bilingualism, children with bilingualism in their bones, meaning that they have like the foundations for bilingualism, that they have a cultural connection to the language, that they've grown up hearing the language, that they speak some of the language in some capacity. And what we really want to do is provide environments that uh, cultivate and catalyze that language development.
0: Yeah, that is so important, the, the ability to maintain the student's heritage language. And it's not just um, at home. Actually, I still remember a teacher saying, notice this is an English-speaking school and your home language should be spoken at home. And that's when I started realizing, like, oh, we should change that because it creates a location-centered, uh, it creates language, it pins language to the location, right? hmm then, then that that dichotomy, that separation of language of language in school or home in school, starts because we start labeling things as home language.
1: I hadn't thought of that. I think that's really important. I also thought, in terms of home language, that some children don't hear their heritage language in the home um, because maybe it was lost a generation before. Yet, it's still something that they have a connection to and a right to. Reclaim. And I also think heritage language is a different language learning process than just learning a second language because there's so much history and so much like familial connections and traumas and all of these things that are tied up with the language that when you're learning it, you may experience a different level of shame or anxiety or different relationships around the language than you would to another language that you're not connected to at all.
0: Well, let's jump into talking about your podcast, which is called Talking to Grandma. It focuses on mm-hmm. language heritage and culture preservation. How did you come up with that name? And what does it mean?
1: Yeah, so. Talking to grandma came to me because, I i mean, I wanted to have conversations with folks who were preserving their heritage languages in the classrooms, in homes, or even studying it in academia. So we have all these different perspectives there. And um, my journey with my heritage language really comes back to my grandma um, because I couldn't speak to her growing up. She only spoke Spanish and I only spoke English. And so this, you know, relationship, it was my only living, it it is my only living grandparent, the only grandparent I've ever known. Um, And she carries so much history and culture and stories there. And we just had this very kind of superficial relationship for a long time because I didn't speak. Spanish. And it wasn't until I became an adult, learned the language, was able to connect with her that this whole world opened up that I was able to learn these familia stories. i I didn't know that I had like that my grandmother had a whole nother child that died at infancy um that I never knew about because I couldn't talk to her about it. And once I could talk to her, I could, I learned about that experience, that story. I learned about her relationships. I learned about her history, her journeys from, you know, Guanajuato to Reynosa to, you know, Donna, Texas, all these different parts of her story. And um, I think that that relationship really exemplified what language can do for people, how it keeps us connected to our stories and our community and our culture. Um, So we want to to call it talking to grandma because of that, because it helps people their heritage languages help them stay connected to their families and their histories and their stories. Um, And also because most heritage languages are lost by the second or third generation. So my story isn't very uncommon. There are lots of people who are growing up in the U.S. who cannot speak or communicate fully with their grandparents because their heritage language has been lost. So we really wanted to kind of elevate the ability to be able to reclaim and reconnect with that that, um, part of our lives. When you
0: talked about your grandma, I, I'm thinking about my nieces and my nephews because they have a very superficial relationship with their grandmother as well. They can only speak, they can understand Vietnamese when spoken to, but they tend, they, they prefer to respond to, in, uh, to, to grandma in English. And so grandma mm-hmm. can only ask for a few things or can, can don't really talk about their, their lives, their, my nieces and nephews lives, like, how are you? Have you eaten? How's school? And that's it. Uh, but there are these like, deep conversations that I'm hearing my sister have with my nieces and my nephews. I'm like, oh, these are the things that are lost. And I'm thinking about the things that they don't understand about grandma because they don't have the language to to um, to engage with her. It reminds me of the quote that uh, the limits of
1: our language are the limits of our world. That was very much my Experience and I didn't know really what I was losing until I learned the language and saw all of these elements of story and family and history. Um, And so I think a part of our work also with families when helping them to figure out how to pass on their heritage languages to their children is to clearly communicate to children. Um, what's the benefits of having that that heritage language? What could how could their lives be enriched by being able to communicate in that heritage language?
0: Can you paint for us a picture what did that look like when you had a superficial relationship with your grandmother before you learned Spanish?
1: Very similar to what you communicated. Like um, I'm hungry, I'm thirsty. Yes, no. I mean, we understood a lot more. I think a lot of my journey and my bilingualism has been to accept that I was like passively bilingual. Right. Um, and that even that set the foundation for me being able to acquire the language much faster. And so being hearing Spanish, I like, I definitely knew all of the language and phrases like when I was in trouble or when I wasn't supposed to touch something or like, you know, direct commands type of stuff. Um, so I would say that it it was very much like she wasn't super, like a super active presence or, or role because we couldn't go deeper beyond that. And, but she talked a lot. She had so many stories. She was super talk- talkative. And I just remember she would always be at the kitchen table with my mom, just talking, 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 talking. And I would tune it out because I really kind of only understood like the direct commands that were you know, said to me, basic things. And so I remember just not understanding when they were talking a lot and and tuning that out. And I remember when I learned the language, it was like this light bulb went off, because I could hear them talking. And I was like, Oh, my God, I understand what they're saying. Like, I know what's going on here. And I remember that moment of um, being allowed kind of like entry into this space and these stories, because I could understand. She's still very talkative um well into her 90s with dementia and like will talk your ear off same story over and over but she has plenty of stories to go around
0: (laughs) will you tell me about how your relationship with your grandmother changed like that what one moment where you're like i you used to have this conversation but then it like where she brought you into her life or you or you brought her into your life because of your uh, because you're you're more spanish
1: um, I remember when so my Spanish started getting better about like a year before I decided to go to Mexico, like to go back to Mexico, um, to live there as a young adult because I also just wanted to like be immersed to learn the language even more. Um, and so I would uh, call her because I called my mom and I was like, Mom, I need to practice Spanish more, and my mom. Having grown up speaking Spanish, it's her first language, also felt like uncomfortable talking to me in Spanish. She was like, I don't know, it's easier in English. Like she didn't wanna, she didn't want to deal with having to talk to me in Spanish. So she was like, call your grandma. Um, so I called my grandma pretty frequently leading up to those, you know, trips to Mexico. And um, I think, you know, just the relationship changed in that my grandma, like I said, loves to talk. So she would just tell me about all these stories about like when she was younger and what her mom was like. And, you know, when she moved to um, up to like the northern part of Mexico and when she decided to, you know, cross over into, well, before, back then it was very different because you could go, you could move pretty, you know, freely between the U S and Mexico, but, but she ended up staying in the U S and, you know, getting sponsored by one of the families that she, you know, worked for. She was a domestic, like house cleaner, um, to be able to stay, to get a visa. And so she just told me everything, like all of these stories. And then when I told her that I was going to Mexico, to live for a while. She just also was like, I'm just so proud of you. Like my parents were like very afraid. They were like, Oh my God, don't go to Mexico, which is really weird because they're Mexican. But they were like, it's dangerous. It's this and that don't go. And my grandma's like, you're going to be fine. You're going back to the motherland. I'm so proud of you. Like, I wish I could go back there. (laughs) And so she just was very encouraging um, and came to visit me a few times while i was there and and just very happy i think to see that um in in kind of her lifetime and also i mean my kids who speak spanish are the only great grandchildren who can speak spanish to her and so i think that also brings her a lot of joy that she's able to like communicate and know that that they Are still connected to the language and the culture, which which means a lot to her.
0: Well, let's get to talking about language loss and how did you lose your your Spanish?
1: Well, I think you know it started back with my parents. So they were they grew up in South Texas, and Spanish was their first language, only language, and they were also the first in their families to ever go to school. Um, So they went to school in South Texas. And at that time in in South Texas, there were, or in all of Texas, there were like English only, you know, rules and laws in schools. So you were only allowed to speak English. Um, If you were speaking other languages at school, then you were punished and physically punished because corporal punishment was still then more prevalent, though I think it's still legal in Texas, Um, And so that was, you know, the reality. So that stance and reality for my parents also led them to believe that Spanish wasn't a valuable aspect for, for upward mobility, it wasn't a valuable tool for them to, you know, go on to higher education or be successful. And they saw it, as you said, as like the home language, not the school language, And because it was a home language, they also didn't develop it in an academic way. Like they came to school with this incredible resource and the school was like, no, that's not a resource. It's actually terrible. Keep it to the side and just focus on your English development. And so that's what they did. And I remember they were all, my parents would also complain because they're like, when we finally took a Spanish class, like in high school, we were like failing the Spanish class, like barely getting by because, you know, we weren't literate in Spanish. We didn't know how to read or write it. And also the Spanish that they were teaching us was from Spain. So it was a different Spanish than the Spanish that we knew. And what we knew, was, you know, they told us was invalid, which I think also created an insecurity about their Spanish and if it was good enough. Um, So when they had kids, they, you know, had internalized this idea of assimilation and idea of English only as being the path to success. And all parents just want the best for their kids, including mine. So they decided that they were going to raise us just in English, so that we would be academically successful. And they were also told by teachers at our school that, you know, if bilingualism would confuse us if they should just speak English to us, because speaking Spanish to us would confuse us. Um, And so that is what happened with us is that we just grew up in a pretty English only environment, except that my parents still spoke Spanish with each other quite a bit, and especially when they didn't want us to know what was being said. And <laughs> we were in a very um Latino community. So we also like just heard it around us a lot in terms of, you know, the markets we would go to, the restaurants. So it surrounded us a lot, but it wasn't something that we were actively using or developing. And I, you know, I really didn't have an interest or see a value in it until I got to college. Um and started to learn more about my identity and history and culture, that I was like, oh, these things are actually assets. These things are good. And having access to the language is good. But that was never communicated to me in my, you know, K-12 experience. Um, and that's also a big part of why I became an educator, is because I was like, had I never gone to college and never been exposed to these ideas, I would have never known about the importance of my cultural and linguistic resources and, and how it was good to, um, to preserve them.
0: What you're saying brings me back to the hierarchy of language, even in Spanish, like, like European Spanish, like Spanish from Spain is very different or and it's seen as more valued, more valid as like the Spanish from like my Puerto Rican friends that were using it. Like they, they would always be corrected and it's like, wait, it's very similar to um, African vernacular. Academic, like African English vernacular is very different than the academic English that we use. And teachers often, or I've seen, uh, like, oh, we don't use that. Not gonna, it's going to. Right? And so this, this, like, this hierarchy, like language, like schools is a place where, langu- where language can become a political tool. And what you're basically saying is like, we really have to be careful. It's not just about teaching language because language is connected to identity. And when we politicize language, we politicize and and, uh, demonize identities.
1: Couldn't agree more. Yeah. If you say that that language has no place in this academic environment, you're saying your culture, your identity, you're come from has no place in this academic environment. And so it's deeply intertwined. And, um, you know, I think a lot of, you know, when you look at the historical perspective, like this, people knew this when they were trying to advance the idea of like an assimilated, you know, country, this was an intentional thing. If you look at Native American boarding schools, and the concept of like, kill the Indian and save the man. Their idea was like, let's strip people of their language. It was it was like, you know, we're they are not allowed to learn that language, anytime they, they speak that language, they're going to be beaten and humiliated because we know that language is a connector to community and people and identity. And we want to take that from this community and assimilate them as quickly as possible. And so I think it's really important to, to look at exactly what you're saying as a politics of language and how that plays out in schools and how we may be you know, well intentioned, maybe we're we're not thinking about that, or like, oh, that's not correct English, or that's Spanglish, or that's whatever. And we're beginning to deconstruct and criticize without understanding the larger political context and the implications for identity and sense of self and belonging, which also has implications for student learning. Let's talk about the language preservation project. So we're a baby organization. <laughs> We've been around for a year. And um, we essentially have two kind of flagship programs. We have our language preservation family collectives and our language preservation teaching collectives, um, which work across these two environments because, you know, our systemically languages, heritage languages have been um, kind of not developed or seen as deficits in school environments. And we can see that tide starting to shift But there's been a legacy of of harm and trauma that's happened in school environments that need to be repaired, and that's also leaked into our home environments and what parents do because parents just want the best for kids. So if we're going to heal this, it needs to be across both the home and school environment. So we work across those two settings, and we have kind of cohort-based models that we like to say decolonize language learning so that we can build bilingual children. And we go about bilingualism in a different way that's really centering a child's identity and culture to build a sense of belonging and motivation around their heritage language. Because if we know anything, like motivation is the number one thing that you need to learn, motivation, interest, and need. And so we really ground our approach to bilingualism in that. and we've completed uh, four pilot programs in Asheville, North Carolina, in two in Denver, Colorado, and one in Antonito, Colorado. And we're expanding to Houston next year. And right now, all of our programming is currently free. So we frequently, like in the communities that we're in, we will like send out calls for families and educators that are interested to sign up. So I would also say, you know, if you're in one of those areas, definitely sign up. Um, If you're not in one of those areas, you should still sign up because it's very possible that we expand to a new geographic location and that we're also hoping to offer programmings there.
0: Let's go back to that topic of uh, heritage language as an asset. Can you talk about uh, why heritage languages are assets?
1: (sighs) Well, heritage languages um, are like any language, an additional language, and we know the benefits of bilingualism really well, right? That bilingualism it increases our empathy, inc- increases our complex problem-solving skills, increases academic performance, reduces risks of Alzheimer's, like I could go on and on about the benefits of bilingualism. And heritage languages um, are like this special bilingual power because it's something that like gives you already a strong foundation for diving deep into bilingualism because it's it you probably have a lot of linguistic assets already in your home in terms of maybe you have family members that speak the language, maybe you have media around you that you're hearing in the heritage language or books or cultural connections or lullabies. And so While for many, many generations, these heritage languages were demonized because as we go back to kind of like, you know, language prestige of maybe if you spoke French, that was great. But if you're speaking um, African-American vernacular English or you're speaking a Spanish from Mexico, that's not so great. So we're starting to shift that perspective and help families to see that this is a strength um, and that this is something that should be cultivated and, and developed.
0: Can you tell us about your work and how you challenge this perspective?
1: So our work challenges this perspective by kind of setting the grounding in helping folks to understand the history that like we didn't just come up with these ideas that some languages are better than others just out of the blue, but it was something that's baked into our systems, that's baked into our policies um, that we can see historically. And I think this historical perspective is really good because as heritage language speakers, sometimes we can internalize um, like shame around, oh, I should know, I should be able to speak this language better, or it's because my parents did this, or it really individualize it without understanding the bigger context. And so when you zoom out, you can say like, Yes, there is a personal role in this, but you were working against this bigger system that was trying to extract these languages and cultures from you in in the service of assimilation. So actually, even though you're looking at yourself maybe in a deficit-based perspective, what if you shifted that to a strength-based perspective and you saw all of the things that you were able to preserve and cultivate despite this systemic you know, approach to taking away language and culture in the U.S. And so that is really kind of the foundation of where we start in terms of um, helping families to understand the benefits of heritage languages.
0: So would you tell us your perspective on raising mostly injured children and your doctorate in in education?
1: Yeah, so I am raising three, three language, I was gonna say three bilingual children, but that's the opposite. (laughs) I'm raising two children with three languages. Um, I don't have an extra imaginary child. So two children with three languages. And um, the, the oldest is five years old, and he speaks pretty fluently Danish and Spanish and is emerging in English. And we're not worried about his English development whatsoever, because it's, it's pretty good for five. And we just know that he'll continue more and more to be exposed to English. And yeah, I mean, when I first started out in this process, I had a lot of doubts, because I was not like Spanish was not my first language. It was something that I learned as an adult. It's not as strong as my English, like I've you know, I've been educated in English all my life. I have my doctoral degree in English. Like I, like I, I know English really well. And when you learn a language later on in life, it can feel like you're always trying to like catch up with the vocabulary and the things that you don't know. And so when I was raising my son in those first months, it was really like a, a habit that I had to get into in terms of speaking the language to him, speaking to him exclusively in Spanish, because I wasn't used to speaking in Spanish all the time. And so I really tried to like build that habit in the house. And I remember this, this feeling of Um, anxiety that I got when I left the house because in the house I was like creating a language rich environment and I was like okay ahorita vamos a cambiar ese pañal y tenemos que quitar este aquí levanta la pierna y narrando todo verdad like narrating everything to try to create a language rich environment and then we went outside and I was like mouth closed in New York City because I was like does that is that person a native Spanish speaker? Are they going to hear me talking and thinking, oh, wow, why is she speaking Spanish with that accent? Or like, it's not her first language. Or did she conjugate that verb wrong? Or all these things that had this fear of like not doing it correctly. And that was a huge barrier for me to get over because I was like, oh my God, am I going to mess up my child? Am I going to do something wrong? Because I'm trying to raise them in this language that is not my strongest language And then I thought about my mom and I thought about this narrative that I had that I was like, oh, I just wish that they taught me more Spanish. And I wish this and that. And it kind of shifted for me to be like, I'm actually grateful for everything that they did give me, that they gave me a passive bilingualism. They gave me a foundation of the language. They gave me an ear for the accent so that I could pick it up easier. And what they gave me was what they had. And it was enough. And I had to take on that par- that perspective as a parent to say, whatever I give my son is what I have, and it's enough. And that strength-based perspective, I had to give to my mom and then give to myself and say, that's what I want my child to adopt is to adopt a strength-based perspective. And, and that was really the foundation of how I could lean into multilingual parenting as a heritage Spanish speaker, as someone who learned the language later as an adult to say, like, I don't want to pass on this, like, perfectionism to my child. I want to pass on a more liberated approach to language learning. I want him to know that accents are good. I want him to know that they're a sign of bravery, that you can speak more than one language. I want him to know that mistakes are okay and totally normal. I want him to know that with language, the goal is connection, right? So if you're able to connect that's much more important than perfectionism and getting every conjugation right every time. And so when I got really grounded in like what I wanted to pass on to my son, not just with the language, but also the perspective of being a learner, it became much easier. And he's definitely adopted that perspective and is like, views himself as a language learner and is like, at six, I'm going to learn French and just, you know, thinks that that language is fun and like a playground and that, you know, he it's possible to learn all of these different languages. Um, So that's what I would also recommend to families that maybe feel a little bit insecure about their language or insecure about their ability to raise multilingual children, that the mindset work is really important. Here's what I wanted to ask. So you have a spouse who's
0: Danish and you're Mexican-American Working in international schools, often the mother's language is not seen um, as prestigious as the father's language. So how do you deal with that? Because there, like, there is a Latin American culture in your family, Latin American slash U.S. But also there's a European culture and your, ch- your children go to a European or, or Danish public school. So how do you deal with like the language hierarchy there?
1: Great question and I see this definitely in Europe. I always point to Denmark as like a beautiful example of bilingualism because they have like a fully bilingual population there. It's just every child that grows up here is going to be bilingual Danish and English, like no question about it, which I think is a great example of how you can build a school system that cultivates that from a young age and consistently um, throughout the upper grades. But also in Denmark, they have a very, they have a significant Middle Eastern population that maybe speaks Farsi or Arabic. And those languages, those home languages are not viewed as valuable or as necessary of cultivating or growing. And I, and, you know, we have which is important we're close to germany but we have classes you know like languages classes in in older grades in german and and french but there's not much in terms of the growing immigrant population here or the heritage languages that are here or teachers aren't you know developing the capacity of like even if you don't speak the language you can still create an environment that cultivates the development of heritage languages and sees the strengths of these languages. And so I think, I know you asked about my family in particular, but just in the larger context of where I live, I can see that language prestige and hierarchy play out in terms of what we see as a valuable second or third language and which languages aren't worthy or as valuable of developing or growing. And you can see even in some people of like, which ones they might be comfortable with hearing around them. You're very comfortable with hearing English around you. But if you hear someone speaking Arabic around you, like the reaction may be different or more, more hostile. And so I think my perspective as an immigrant here. I'm like, you know, my family was they were immigrants in the US and I'm I'm an immigrant in Denmark. And it's, you know, hard. It's, I think, valuable to have that immigrant experience. It's hard. But I also come in as a very privileged immigrant because I have English as my language, and not one of the more marginalized or looked down upon languages here in Denmark. Um, So I just want to name that. And in terms of our family, I don't know that I've, because we're not in an international like private school, we're in the public schools, I've not experienced that personally. I've not experienced like someone, you know, saying that Spanish shouldn't be developed or that it's better that they use English or Danish. But it's also because I'm probably very like loud and out about what we're doing and who we are. And I'm like, just so you know who I am and what I do in terms of the teachers. And um, so I think they all know what we what we stand for. And we don't get that much kind of pushback about the language that we're using
0: you said earlier that your husband speaks um, Danish to, to your children, and then you speak Spanish to them, and you don't worry about English. And so that's so fascinating. Why don't you worry about English development, even though you're an American?
1: Yeah, I mean, we don't worry about it that much. We do a different like we're very intentional about how we go about multilingualism. I think it's important to have a plan and to let that plan evolve over time. But When we started having children, we were like, okay, you'll be the, you know, Danish speaker and I'll be the Spanish speaker and we're going to speak English between us. And then at dinner time, we're all going to speak English together because that will be our time to like practice and develop English. We have some English books. They have some, you know, we have some friends who have children who speak English. So we have some like intentional kind of exposure to English when we go back to the U.S., Um, We're very intentional about Spanish exposure, but also some of his his cousins or our children's cousins only speak English. So we have, you know, intentional exposure to English as a language. But when we think about like what media we expose them to, like on Friday nights, we get to watch a movie and the movie is in um, Spanish, like almost all the time. Um, If it's not in Spanish, then we choose English. Um, And then if it's not in English, then we choose Danish because Danish is their strongest language, what they're exposed to most of the time. So we kind of have this hierarchy of like what languages they're exposed to, why and when. And we've had a conversation about that. And And we've also had a conversation about what it looks like when they're older, because say we move back to the U.S., then everything's going to switch and Danish will become the most prioritized language at home because they will probably be in an English, Spanish, you know, environment. And so when we watch media, it probably will always be in Danish, the books and things like that. And so it can shift over time. Um, and I would encourage folks to think about language with that intentionality because learning it doesn't just happen through osmosis. There has to be some plan around it
0: bilingual expert uh, Owen Cressfield who wrote the book called Raising Bilingual Families said that we have to have a family language plan and you just Mm -hmm. gave a really beautiful clear language plan we're saying Danish is the is the most dominant language here so we're going to prioritize Spanish but when they go to America we will also then switch back to Danish as a prioritized language because English will be developed and Spanish because they'll be at a bilingual program. I love that. Let's spend the last 10 minutes talking about what schools and homes can do
1: to create, uh, to preserve uh, students' heritage languages. So what can schools do to preserve heritage languages? I think the best thing that they can do is to have some type of programming in the heritage language. So um, thinking about what does dual language programming look like but that's not always possible because children come with so many different types of heritage languages that maybe you don't have the teachers that speak that language or enough students to be able to build a class around it. Um, so I think it's also really important to have like a clear stance and mission statement, just like we have... like. Here's our equity statement or here's our mission statement to have something in there about heritage languages and cultures so that everybody on your staff is really clear about the importance of it and how they go about supporting that mission statement. And I would also say, like, because this is a shift, because for generations, schools have actually not been a place that have cultivated heritage languages, that there should be some type of communication and orientation to families that says like, welcome, and whatever language you have in your culture, in your community, in your home is something that we view as an asset. And here are ways that you can develop that and partner with us to ensure that your children continue to develop that. And I've seen some really great models in terms of um, like some school visits we did in Denver, where, uh, where schools have like a family kind of home language project where they help families figure out a plan like these family plans for continuing to develop heritage languages at home. Um, so that's what I would say schools can do. Um, I would say every teacher, no matter what language they speak, can create a culturally and linguistically affirming learning environment for children And help children understand that their culture and their languages are their strengths um, and really create that environment. So everyone's involved. And then in terms of homes um, for cultivating heritage languages, I would say that it really starts with like understanding the importance of it and shifting the mindset from deficit-based if it's there to strength-based and developing a plan like you said of like how you're going to go about passing on this heritage language. And with the plan, I always like to start with families to think about what's your goal? Because some folks may have the goal of, I want my child to like be able to go to university in this language and read and write and speak and everything. And other families are like, I want my child to be able to communicate to their grandparent in this language. And your plan is going to look very differently based on what your goal is. And then the last thing I would say for families around this is that though you have a plan and you have a goal your child is your child and they're autonomous and independent and just like you may have a plan that they're going to you know be a, a in the orchestra playing the piano and x y and z you know you can create the environment for them to build those skills but ultimately uh, to build those skills but ultimately they get to decide what they want to do with those tools and so they may decide you know i'm I'm not going to pick this up, or I'm not going to do this, and they may come back to it to a, le- a later point. So bilingual parenting, just like any form of parenting, is about releasing the grip on what the outcome is going to be and really just focusing on the process.
0: You are saying uh, if you if you want to raise your children as bilingual people, um, partner with them.. Mm-hmm. Yeah let's spend the last five minutes talking about what teachers can do um, because most of the people who are listening are just teachers looking for really clear um, strategies you talked about teachers can create a a language affirming environment what are the teach? what are the things teachers um, should keep doing should stop doing and start doing
1: Um, should keep doing I think teachers should keep showing up every day and loving their children like every time I'm visiting a school, I just know similar to parents that they want the best for their kids, that, par- that teachers also want the best for their kids. So I would say, keep doing that. And I know that schools, particularly right now, after the pandemic, it can be really like difficult place to navigate. So I would just say, keep showing up for your kids. What they should start doing, I would take a really close inventory of your curriculum, your books, and your materials, so if you're wanting to create a culturally and linguistically affirming environment take a look at your books do your books reflect the cultures of your students not only the cultures of their students but the culture of the world do the books are do you have books that show translanguaging? do you have books that are maybe in English and Spanish or English and Tagalog right it can show a load of language diversity, even to a monolingual English student, so that they can show interest in the culture or in the language. And so I would take an inventory of your books, similarly, of your curriculum of how are you introducing different cultures and different identities and different languages to your students as an integrated part of what you do every day and not just like the multicultural night at, you know, school. Um, So really thinking about how you do that, Um, and similarly with the materials of like what do the children see on the walls around them? What do the what does the play area look like? What you know everything that you have, ensuring that this is something that affirms their identity and humanity and the humanity of of their classmates and students. So I said start and continue and stop doing. Hmm. I maybe would say like stop doing. this is also from my experience, release a culture of perfectionism. Like so much we're like afraid to go into it and start because we're afraid that we might not do it right, but know that you're a learner model, that you're a learner alongside your students and narrate that for them. And I think really when you like show a playfulness with learning new things, that that translates to your students as well and they feel safer to dive into learning as well.
0: You mentioned earlier, this will be our last question. You mentioned earlier that uh, you often go to schools in your, in your work with them and that means you must see so many different classrooms and how they're creating affirming language, uh, places for that affirm languages. Can you tell me besides the books, um, can you share an example of, uh, of a classroom that was like whoa you walked in and the way you saw the teacher interacting with students was like yes this is language affirming even though the teacher didn't speak the languages that students represented?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I would say, so one of the communities that we recently worked in was like a majority white teaching force that didn't speak English working in a majority immigrant Spanish speaking community. Um, And the teachers started adopting and learning these um, affirmations for students in Spanish. And so the teacher started like starting their day with these affirmations. And I think even like modeling this little like, you know, releasing the culture perfectionism of like saying these affirmations with students in Spanish as a way to start their day, even though the rest of the day is going to be in English, because that's the language that the teacher speaks, was a really powerful shift in power dynamics, shift in showing the the value of that culture. Um, And really just a beautiful, um, beautiful sight to see of the children repeating these very affirming, affirming statements in Spanish.
0: Well, uh, Dr. Vero Benavides, muchas gracias por tu tiempo y for your wisdom and your compassion that helps students reclaim, children reclaim, families reclaim the connection to their language, which is a connection to their culture and their families.
1: Gracias a ti, fue un placer. with the joy.
0: I have a favor and an invitation. My favor is to ask you to please review this podcast if you found it valuable. My invitation is for you to enroll in my scaffolding learning or teacher collaboration courses. I've taken the principles that I've learned from experts in the field. I've applied them to my classes. I kept the things at work and I'm sharing all of them in these courses. Now onto our recap. When a particular language is not valued at school, it clearly communicates that people speaking that language and the culture that's associated with that language are not welcome at school. As teachers, we do not have to be multilingual or know our students' languages to create Affirming firming environment for languages. We can actively resist English-only policies and create opportunities within our instruction for students to use their heritage languages as part of the learning process and a form of personal expression. For example, students can do partner work using their heritage language or research and take notes using it. They can even draft ideas in another language before submitting it in English. Yes, we are in the field of language acquisition, but maybe we should rename it to Developing Students' Languages, not just one. Thank you for listening. Be safe and be rooted in peace. It's your turn to play Traffic Light Teaching. Tweeted me either your red, yellow, or green light from this particular episode.